Hey friends, just so you know, we enjoy the swear word and we rely on good old fashioned humor to get through some seriously dark subject matter. At no time do we intend any disrespect toward the victims or families of the victims in the cases we cover. Also, be sure to listen to the end for a few palate cleansing bloopers to reset your mindset. And with that, we thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy. Hey there, friends. Welcome to Crime Motel. I'm Carrie. And I'm Jamie. Today's case is a tough one. It, it occurred in 1994, basically in our backyard, James. Oh, shit. And we're going to get a real close-up view of the absolute lowest level of depravity humans are capable of. Mm. Yeah. Great. As I was putting this episode together, I like ha- I like started to have an internal conflict. Because, as I said, this happened in 1994. Well, 1994 was kind of an exciting, scary, like liberating year for me because that was the year I had graduated high school. That summer was both like super fun. I remember like fucking freedom and like I was an adult technically, legally. Right. But it was also scary because I was headed off to college. I was like going to be on my own like responsible for myself fully for the first time ever i was on the brink of the rest of my life and somewhere else in the united states cora lee jones was abducted sexually assaulted (sighs) murdered and just like that her family was forever changed in the most horrible way so Mm. like i was thinking back to like the memories of like when i graduated high school and like grad party and like all the shit in 1994, which was a pivotal year for me. And then like, you know, meanwhile, across the United States, fucking the worst of the worst was happening to a family right. and to a young girl. Mm. Yeah. I was researching local cases because as you and I much prefer, we much prefer to do the more obscure. And I stumbled on this one. And when I say this happened in our backyard, it literally happened in our backyard. Like, not, okay, not literally in our backyard, but like, figuratively speaking, where we live. Oh, shit. Okay. And I was looking for credible sources. I stumbled onto this case and I was looking for credible sources. And I found the freaking Mecca because Paula Zahn's on the case. Love it. I love that show. She covered... Cora in season 17 episode 5 titled Terra in Wa- Terror in Wapaka. Oh wow, so this is Wapaka. Yeah, and Appleton. Oh shit. Okay, so Yes. So definitely the, our it neck is of the woods. literally in our neck of the woods. The on the case team at Paula's like the Paula's not on the case team, they did a fantastic job reporting the facts of this case, interviewing family members, interviewing key investigators that worked on the case. And Honestly, everybody that's listening, if you haven't seen this episode, it's definite. It's only like 42 minutes. It's definitely worth the 42-minute the watch. It's streaming on Discovery Plus channel. And it's it's also on Max. Oh, is it? Oh, fantastic. Yeah, because that, that's where I watch on the case. It aired in August, on August 12th in 2018. And one of the things that stayed with me was being able to literally palpably feel Cora's parents' absolute intense agony over the loss of their daughter mm-hmm. even all these years later because again it happened in 1984 and this was aired 24 years later and it was it was almost like it had happened yesterday Damn. like you could just see it in there i don't even know how to describe it like you could say in their facial expressions but it was like it was different than that it was like what they were it was like their vibe and their emoting and their like aura it was so it was heart wrenching yeah so mm. i decided that I would fill my t- my crime will tell tumbler with Angel's Envy. Oh, and for everyone that's not aware of what Angel's Envy is, it is a young bourbon and it's got a hell of a kick. She feisty. <laughs> Angel's Envy is feisty, and I feel like Angel's Envy is the perfect homage to Cora because you know while we discuss her case, that. because yeah. she was a sweet, sweet, loving angel, and I'm sure to this day and every day. She wraps her angel wings around her loved ones so that they can feel her presence. Mm. 
So oh, on that cry. note, cheers, girl. I know. Like, cheers. Cheers. Clink. I have. <gasps> you have an ice ball. Yeah. My new Christmas gift from my amazing girlfriend, Patty. I got some fancy ice molds. AKA Patty Licious, because she mm-hmm. is just delightful. <laughs> we'll take a sippy sip because we're getting into this. I know. Okay. Already ready? Uh-huh. Okay. I think so. So, Monday, September 5th, 1994, started out promising. It was Labor Day weekend. It was the Labor Day holiday. It was that Monday. Ugh. Labor Day is celebrated here in the United States. And the Jones family, they were visiting, well, Cora was visiting her grandmother near Wapaka, Wisconsin. And it was a bit cloudy that Monday, but that temperature that day, great for playing outside. You know, the kind where it's like not too hot, not too cold. You don't have to wear a jacket, but you like can wear like a light jacket and then wrap it around your waist when you get warm. It was perfect. Yeah. And so it was great for playing outside, which is exactly what Cora wanted to do. So she hopped on her bike and she went for a glorious, I'm a 12-year-old kid with the world at my feet bike ride. You remember those bike Mm -hmm. rides? Oh, fuck yeah. And that was the last time her family would ever see her alive. (sighs) Damn. Later that same afternoon, Cora's grandmother called her daughter-in-law, Vicki Jones. Vicki is Cora's mama. She called Vicki and she was like, hey, so... I'm not sure if this is something, but Cora's not back yet, and she's been gone for a couple of hours, and she's not back by now, and she should have been back by now, and it's not like her, and I'm a little worried. And so maybe you should come over here because I feel like this is not a good thing. Mm -hmm. And she explained to Vicky, the grandmother, that she went for a bike ride, and she said she was going to go down to the Sanders Bridge, which is located on Rural Road. In fact, Cora's dad, Rick Jones, he used to ride his tricycle all around that same area when he was a young child. So this area, this area had been historically safe for freaking decades. So Rick and Vicky and grandma, they didn't have any feelings of concern or apprehension at letting their daughter ride her bike alone along these roads. Mm. And she was like, hey, grandma, do you mind if I take my bike? I'm going to ride it down to the Sanders Bridge. It's in, it's not that far away from where they live. And she's like, right. of course, go. So let's get to know Cora just a little bit. Cora Jean Jones was born December 8th, 1991 in Nina, Wisconsin. Aww. She was the oldest child to Rick and Vicki Jones, and she had a younger brother named Zach. So okay. typical family of four. She attended the Wyoiga Fremont Middle School. She was a seventh grader. And by all accounts, she was known as an intelligent and friendly child. And she loved typical teenager things. She loved talking on the phone. She loved hanging out with her friends, listening to music. Do you remember those days? Like, oh, hell yeah. And she in school, she was involved in music classes. And she played the French horn, which I thought was really fucking cool because I was also in music classes. And I will tell you that the French horn was kind of like the redheaded stepchild. Apologies to any redheaded stepchildren out there. But like nobody wanted to play it because you had to have upper body strength to hold it up. It's not big as big as a tuba, but you still had to like hold it up. Oh, for sure. Can I just say just real quick that I was her age at this time? I was 12 in 1994. No shit. So this is like... Ooh, so this is hitting you in a different way. I was probably doing similar things. Yes, you absolutely were. That same damn day. Were you in the Girl Scouts? I was a brownie for like one year, but I didn't make it to Girl Scouts because I was well, bored. Cora was a very proud Girl Scout. Aww. And she frequently involved. She was frequently involved in church activities with her family. So she, but she was a very well-rounded child. But she also regularly volunteered alongside her mama, Vicky. At a local healthcare center. Oh, I, I mean, love that. I mean, this girl is 12. And she she regularly volunteered her time with her mom. She had talked of becoming a kidney specialist when she <sighs> was older. Basically, she was the type of daughter that any parent would be proud to raise. One who had a very bright future, very promising future ahead of her. Yeah. And obviously, just a heart of gold. Yeah. I mean, she was just, she was, and I'll talk about it a little bit later, but she just, she wanted everybody to be happy. She just wanted peace and love. You know what I mean? Yeah. So when the inkling of something terribly wrong caused Cora's grandmother to call Vicky, the family quickly banded together and they all got to grandmother's house and then they started searching for Cora. So they split up and they searched different roads. They'd searched different places where they thought she might be and they were 
desperately holding out hope that she just simply lost track of time because this was not like her. One family member participating in the search was Cora's cousin, Mary Jones. And Mary, she was the first to discover a very distressful sign that something bad may have actually really happened to Cora. She found Cora's bike laying near the end of a driveway. Mm. So she popped up to the house to see if the homeowner was home and if that person knew anything about why that bike was lying by their driveway. Yeah. And the homeowner shared that he's like, yeah, you know, earlier today I, I came home and like I, the bike was literally laying in the middle of the road, completely abandoned. So mm. I stopped my truck, I got out and I moved the bike to the end of, to the near, near the bottom of my driveway because I figured something happened and I just didn't want the bike to get hit by a car to cause an accident. And also so that the person that owns the bike could come back and get it. Right. Ugh. And Mary was like, fuck. Well, she was, she was young at the time. So she probably wasn't thinking fuck, but maybe she was thinking fuck. Yeah. Shooey. She was like, oh God, there's no way this is not a sign of something terrible. So she mm -hmm. raced back to her and Cora's grandmother's house and she shared what she had learned. With this information, the family called the Wapaki County, the, 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 the Wapaka, the Wapaki County, <laughs> <laughs> the Wapaka County Sheriff's Office, and they reported Cora missing. Detective Al Krager was assigned to the case, and his instincts told him this could very likely be a really challenging case to bring to resolution. Because given that her bike was literally lying in the middle of Sanders Road, Cora had clearly been abruptly taken by somebody, possibly a stranger, right. and Krager knew stranger abduction cases were notoriously like among the most difficult difficult types of cases to solve because oh, yeah. because stranger on stranger like there's no way to connect, right? Mm -hmm. And especially when there's no like no evidence at the scene. It's just a bike laying in the middle of the road and that's it. Right. Yeah. The good news yeah. though was the sheriff's office took action straight away. And they began leading search efforts to locate Cora. So they didn't pull this, mm, you have to She ran away. Hours. Yeah. Yeah. Good. According to Cora's mama, Vicki Jones, within about an hour and a half of notifying the authorities that day, September 5th, there were around 50 to 75 people that had gathered to search for her that same evening. And missing oh, nice. posters were actually created and distributed all around town by that evening. Oh, Wow. That's, that's awesome. the one thing, yeah, that's the one thing about small communities that is really comforting and helpful is that most people generally know each other or they know of each other and they know somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody. And when then something happens, people rally. Right. And with, and with this rally, by the next morning, there were roughly 200 people gathered to help continue looking for her in the daylight. Shit, that's amazing. Now, Wapaka, for those of you that don't know, it's a small rural town. It's not like we're talking a, a city of 150,000 people here. Right. So 200 people, that's impressive. I mean, and if you watch Paula's on, on the case, I mean, there's people that are like, I don't even know her, but this happened in my community and I wanted to offer my assistance. Wisconsin's governor at the time, fun fact, he even sent his helicopter to assist in the search. And Aww. Cora's dad, Rick, went up in the helicopter to join in an aerial search for Cora. Wow, so like, that's amazing. Yeah, like there was a rally. But even with all this manpower, she there was nothing. Nobody could find her. Like no trace of. No trace of her. Mm -hmm. And what made this search more urgent was that Cora was on daily medication necessary to basically keep her alive. Oh, shit. Yeah. So when Cora was born, she was born with a birth defect that affected her kidney function. And when she was just a wee three-year-old, she actually went through two very painful major surgeries to correct the birth defect as much as possible. And she lost one of her kidneys as a result. So she was only operating on one kidney. And during these surgeries, there was even a time when it was unclear if Cora would even make it through. Oh, wow. So they already had sort of like this very like, oh, so she was kind of like their miracle child. Right. I'm sure they were just extra protective of her too because of that. Yeah. And, and she was a fighter. And so she survived. But living with only one functioning kidney, that puts an incredible strain on and burden on the body. Right. And mm -hmm. so it required her to be on daily medication for the rest of her life. And without that medication, she would become very ill and like quite possibly die. Uh. And so 
Rick and Vicky, her parents were like, Jesus, this is like, we need to find her and we need to find her as soon as freaking possible because she doesn't have her medication. So this, this sense of urgency that spurred Rick and Vicky to do everything they could to find her as soon as possible made them like work with the local media to get on the air, to make heartfelt pleas for Cora's safe return. They did basically everything they could think of to bring as much attention to this case in hopes that somehow, some way they would find her safe, right. alive, and soon. Mm. Meanwhile, authorities were also searching everywhere. I mean, they did dragnets, basically. They searched all surrounding areas of Sanders Bridge. They searched the river that flowed under the bridge. They searched the adjacent farm fields. And after 48 hours, there was still no sign of Cora. And Detective Krieger, he had the difficult task of talking to Rick, with Rick and Vicky, right? He was like, hey, look, you guys should brace yourselves that it is possible a very real possibility that this situation might not turn out very happy because as most right. true crime fans know, if investigators can't get a lead within the first 48 hours, the possibility of finding someone alive and well starts to diminish very rapidly the longer right. it goes. Yeah. And Wapaka County is small. It's a small rural type of community where most everybody knows everybody. So this was a gigantic fucking case for the area. And if it, it really affected so many people because it wasn't just the family and like close friends. It went far beyond that. And as the days started to go by with no sign of Cora, more and more members of the community were starting to show up to volunteer their time to search the effort. So like 200 the next day, it kept growing and growing. And like Aww. this, it was very important to people to find Cora. Right. Because she represented the future. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Lots of people could be like, this could be my 12 year old niece, yeah. nephew, daughter, whatever. Right. Or nephew. somebody does have a kid and they're like, my kid I know is safe, locked in the house mm -hmm. at home. So I'm going to go out and look for, for these people's kid. Because yeah. if it was the other way around, I would appreciate the extra help trying to find my child. Exactly. Wow. Ugh. So word spread far and wide. You know, we're, I mean, they did a really good job getting a lot of media coverage and immediate media attention on this. And five days after Cora vanished, the afternoon of September 10th, 1994, two poor unsuspecting souls, two men, Chad Mullis and Carl Bostwick, they were driving in Langlade County to set up their deer stands in anticipation of the upcoming um, hunting season. And around 2.30 p.m. that afternoon, they stumbled upon a young girl's body lying mm. in a ditch alongside Forest Road in Langlade County. And they knew from the intense massive media coverage, this could probably be the girl that's been missing and everybody is talking about from Wapaka County. Right. How far was this from where they lived? She was found, this body was found about 90 miles from where Cora's oh, wow. bike had been abandoned in the middle of rural world. So it, it was a good at least hour and a half drive, probably longer because there are kind of back roads up there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, from, mm -hmm. from where she, where her grandmother lived. Yeah. Damn. So Chad and Carl, they're like, fuck. They immediately notified the Langlade County authorities that they're like, hey, we found a, we found a body. Detective Ben Baker was, was sent to investigate the scene. And when he got there, he found a young girl lying face down, completely naked, mm. with her hands behind her back, bound by the remnants of like a pink T-shirt. Oh, Jesus Christ. She also had a black strap around her neck, and it was obvious that she had likely suffered from a sexual assault. And what was more like, ugh, is that her body had clearly been staged, like po like posed mm. yeah. to shock investigators because it-, it it was it was very clearly set up that way. Uh, yeah. So Detective Baker was pretty quickly able to link the girl's body with the missing case of Cora Jones in Wapaka County because Cora had a surgical scar from her kidney oh, issues right. and her two surgeries from when she was a toddler, toddler. And the same exact scar was present on this young girl's body that was mm. in the ditch. So when the medical examiner got there when Cora's body was removed from the ditch they were able to see the full extent of what her abductor had done to her 
it turned out that the cause of her death was actually not due to strangulation, as you would have assumed because of the black the thing tied yeah. around. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But she had actually um, died from multiple stab wounds. Oh, fuck. And it would later be determined that she had been stabbed about eight times. And some of the stab wounds were quite deep. Oh, my God. Um, and there was a baby. shit ton of blood at the scene. So investigators were like, okay, so this is where she was she actually was killed. killed. Yeah. During the processing of the scene for any evidence, authorities were able to lift and preserve several red carpet fibers that they had found on, on the body. Hmm. Okay. Now, Detective Baker had the very sad and difficult job of notifying Wapaka County officials of the discovery of Cora's body. And after Detective Crager received the call, he headed up to Langley County to investigate the scene. And that same evening... Two police cars pulled into Rick and Vicky's driveway. And when they saw this, and when they saw one of their ministers walking up to their door, they knew they were going to hear that their Cora wasn't oh, with them man. I can't even. Ugh. So to say that this small community was shook was an understatement. Yeah. Her case was extremely emotional. And there was like this huge immense disbelief that something so horrible could happen in in this small town and a lot of innocence was stripped away in the blink of an eye that day right and no one could reconcile why anyone would want to hurt cora she was a lovely happy sweet young girl she had strong close relationship with her mama vicky she had tons of friends was always smiling like what she was the notorious peacekeeper she was always the first to help if someone needed it and this was just so fucking sad and it really hit the community hard. And of course, needless to say, Rick and Vicky, they were just fucking utterly devastated. They were mm. just devastated because they lost their baby girl. Yeah. Who had fought multiple times in her life to yeah. survive and then to be taken like that. Yeah. So four days wow. later, on September 14th, 1994, Cora's funeral was held at Trinity Lutheran Church in Wapaka after which she was laid to eternal rest. So she had a nice funeral. Meanwhile, police departments across the state of Wisconsin banded together to work Cora's case. Mm. So I was like Good. super stoked that it, that there was no jurisdictional, you know, dick whipping here. Like right. they all banded together. The FBI formally joined the efforts as well because it was dick across jurisdiction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just sorry, that caught up with me. Dick whipping. <laughs> And as they were working the case, a handful of tips came in about a van. So there were like a handful of different tips from different people about like what seemed to be like the same van. And while some of the details varied between these tips, essentially the main story was, hey, I noticed a copper colored or like a brown colored van that was like a tall van. So not a regular size van, but like a tall Econo van, you know, those kind. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it stood out to me because it definitely wasn't from the area. So that was like the main theme of these tips. Okay. So they're like, okay. So they start trying to go down that road. And as they're going down that road, another tip came in from a man that said he believed his son might have been involved in the disappearance of Cora. Oh, wow. He said, hey, I have a son uh, and he just got fired from his job at the post office. He's going postal. <laughs> and he had been acting really, really strange lately. Like, I think maybe he might be involved he's living in his van and what? he often fished in the very area where cora was abducted down by the, mm. uh, the sanders bridge but most alarmingly the son had cut out a piece of carpet from his van and he gave it to his dad and he was like hey dad can you get rid of this and he fuck? told his dad that he cut the carpet piece out because he had spilled fish water on it first of all ew fish water yeah i don't yeah, like that like i don't like that yeah, Ew, I just, just that's got to have gnarly smell. Yeah. When the authorities tested the carpet piece, there was no evidence linking the van to Cora. Okay, just so it was fish water. Well, I mean, good for good for that guy, like coming forward though, and not trying to protect his son and doing yeah. what was right. Wow. So the the authorities were like, "Fuck, okay, this is a dead end. This isn't our guy." Well, then another lead came in about a man who made his career being a violent criminal. Sweet. Mm -hmm. 
Super upstanding dude. Yeah, I love those assholes. He was 40-year-old James Richard Wintella. Dick's right in his name. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> uh-huh. Right, sandwich right there in the middle. And he lived in a copper-colored van that looked exactly oh. like what some of the tipsters had described. Okay. So the police are going, okay. And he was staying at a campground that was located about 15 miles from where Cora's body had been found in Langlade County. Okay. So we've got proximity. And on his rap sheet, he had spent time in prison for rape of a minor. Oh, fuck. So authorities are like, ooh, let's go, let's go question Wintella. And when they did... He was fucking pissed that they would even think that he had something to do with this. All right. Fuck off, Wintella. Yeah. He was like, look, I have never been to Wapaka. I couldn't have possibly had anything to do with that murder because I've never been to Wapaka. Okay. The authorities say, well, you know, where were you? Well, uh, basically, he wasn't <laughs> able to provide a valid alibi. And as the questioning continued, it grew more intense. It was getting heated. And then Wintella fucked up and he tripped over himself. And he was like, well, uh, you know, I've never been to Wapaka, whatever. Well, he made an offhanded comment that the roads in Wapaka were narrow. Oh, And author- authorities were like, well, how do you know what the roads are like in Wapaka if you've never been to Wapaka? Yeah. So then Wintella started becoming emotional during the interrogation and he started expressing concern for how Cora's murderer would be treated by police. And at this point, authorities were like, well, fuck yeah, this has got to be Cora's killer. And they doubled down on finding the physical evidence to link him to Cora. So they got search warrants. They got search warrants for his home, for his van, and they worked their asses off to find any shred of evidence, any way to link Cora, scoping out them red, any, was there red carpet anywhere? Like, is there, is there a knife? What, what do we have? Right. Yeah. They have absolutely nothing. Oh shit. Not one thread of evidence that connected Wintella to Cora's murder and investigators were forced to let him go and like, just keep on looking. Mm. And what was interesting, just, this is a side note. Um, when I was looking into James Wintella, because I was like, who the fuck is this guy? I want to know what his whole deal. I actually found out that he passed away about just shy of like two years after this in July really? of 1996. Yeah. So he was I young. couldn't figure out. I, I wasn't able to, to discover like what he passed away from. But yeah, he passed away a couple of years later. Wow. Anyway, so investigators went back to square one and they were like, okay, let's start over. Let's go back to the abduction scene in Wapaka County. Let's start from scratch. Let's turn over every single stone, even if we've already turned it over, so that we can find a way to either link Wintella to Cora's murder or find out who really killed her. Right. And in doing so, police learned of a 24-year-old woman who had almost been abducted over the July 4th weekend. She had been riding her bike when a man had stopped her and asked for directions. She was like, hey, man, I'm not from this area. Can't help you. Sorry. Yeah. She continued riding on. And the man then hit her from behind with his car, knocked her off her bike into a ditch on the side of the road. And while she was on the ground trying to like, like get her senses about her, the driver got out of his car, pointed a gun at her and told her to get into his fucking car. And she was like fuck you. I am not getting in your car. Yeah. And at just that moment, another car drove by and the roads in Wapaka, I mean, it's not like you're going to go 50 miles an hour down a rural road, right? Yeah. And they're narrow. Yeah. And just that moment, another car drove by and that driver clearly saw the girl on the ground, a man standing over her with a gun. They all like everybody made eye contact and the driver's like, I see you, you see me. I'm just going to keep on going. And this really unnerved the guy. And so he like hoofed it back to his car and he got the fuck out of there. Oh shit. Okay. I thought you were going to say that somebody stopped and helped her, but I'm glad that that freaked him out and he stopped. It freaked him out. He left. He got out of there. He didn't want to get in trouble leaving her in the ditch. So she Mm. like escaped with her life, basically. Mm -hmm. So naturally, she's fucking scared out of her mind, but she was alive. And for the most part, she was unharmed. She in little bumps and scrapes there from being hit. Her attempted abduction had taken place. Abduction? (laughs) Her attempted abduction had taken place in the same area as Cora and had also been riding her bike. Police were convinced that the same man that abducted Cora 
was responsible for the attempted abduction of this 24-year-old woman because the similarities between the two cases were really like noticeable, but also because while this woman was much older than Cora at 24, she had been wearing pigtails at the time. (gasps) And coupled with what she was wearing, she was wearing like jeans, overall shorts, like a younger looking outfit. Yeah. And she had been riding her bike. All of that put together made her look way younger than 24 to somebody that's like driving by. Wow. Say like maybe a 12 or 13 year old girl. Mm-hmm. But this woman was a fucking badass because she went to the police nice. and she reported what happened to her. And she was able to recall important details about what this guy looked like. And she told the authorities like, look, to me, he looked like he was in his 50s. He had like a scruffy appearance. He wore a mustache and he didn't have a lot of hair on the top of his head, but it was like wild. He was like scruffy. Mm. Hot. <laughs> cool your tits. (laughs) She said he was driving a late 80s or early 90s maroon car. Very different from a copper colored van, right? A late 80s or early 90s maroon car. And with the details she recalled, she was actually able to help build a composite sketch of the guy that tried to abduct her. And then this sketch was then distributed within the area and to news and media outlets to kind of get the word out to be like, hey, be on the lookout. Right. So police were focused hard on finding the man that she had described because they were becoming more and more convinced that if they found him, they would find Cora's killer because they believed him to be one and the same. So they turned their attention from that copper colored slash brown colored tall van type thingy to finding this older dude driving a late model maroon car. Meanwhile, in Appleton, Wisconsin, which is about a 30, 35 minute drive from Wapaka, depending on where you are in Wapaka and where you are in Appleton. It's about a half yeah. hour away. So it's, they're very close to each other. Authorities were hard at work on their own investigation on a crime spree that had been taking place in the Appleton area. When the threads the investigators on Cora's case were pulling on started to lead them toward a specific person, they learned that this person was also the main suspect in this Appleton case. Oh, shit. So there were several, because there were several similarities between the two cases, and it was really leading authorities to believe that maybe both jurisdictions were now chasing the same guy. Wow. Okay. Now, the Appleton police had been working a case that involved a string of sexual assaults and robberies. Hmm. What caught everyone's attention, though, is that the victims in the Appleton case described a very similar scruffy-looking older man as the perpetrator, and witnesses described seeing an older model maroon car in the area at the same time as the assaults occurred. Oh, shit. And as police were narrowing in on looking for this maroon car, a man called 911 to report a peeping Tom who was looking in the bathroom window at his wife. Ew. So the Ugh. man called police. Then he went outside and he was like, hey, man, what the fuck are you doing? And confronted the peeping Tom guy. And the peeping Tom guy, he tried to make a quick getaway, but the guy like pounced on him and like wrestled (laughs) him to the ground and like laid on top, literally just like laid on top of him until the police got there. Nice. I will fucking love that. And when the police got there, they arrested 53-year-old David Frank Spanbauer. Whoa. And as they were working through Spanbauer's arrest and booking, they also realized that he was driving a late model maroon car. What? Shocker. So they're like, okay, who is this guy? So they pulled up his criminal history and they were like, holy fucking shit. He had the longest rap sheet going back decades. According to a Rippin Press article, so Rippin is a town that's in Wisconsin and it's like maybe an hour away from Appleton. So in a Rippin Press article dated December 28th, 2014, on January 12th, 1960, 1960, Spanbauer broke into a home in Green Bay, Wisconsin, after pulling a peeping Tom move at a young 16-year-old who was playing the piano and minding her own fucking business. Oh, my God. She was at her aunt and uncle's house at the time, babysitting her cousins, mm-hmm. and she was playing the piano for them. Spanbauer pointed a gun at the girl and forced her to take him to a bedroom where he tied her to the bed, roughly removed her clothes, basically tore them off of her, and violently raped her. Oh, my God. At that moment, 
her uncle had returned to the house and found Spambauer in his home. So what did Spambauer do? He raised his gun and he shot the uncle directly in the fucking face. <gasps> yes. And then Whoa. he got away. He got away. And he died. The uncle died? I don't think the or... uncle died. Okay. There's no, okay. like, I didn't look into what happened to the uncle, but I don't think he died. Okay. Because there was no murder tied, tied to that. It was okay. burglary and Well, that's good. Rape. On February 16th, 1960, just like five weeks later, Spambauer was arrested for carrying a concealed weapon because he had a gun on him. But you have to have a conceal and carry license if your gun is concealed. Like you can't just do that. During his trial, he was convicted of raping that 16-year-old Green Bay girl. He was also convicted of a burglary and rape in Outagamie County. That's the county Appleton sits in. And a burglary in Winnebago County. Winnebago and Outagamie counties are right next to each other. And an armed burglary in Milwaukee County, which is about 90 minutes south of Winnebago and Outagamie counties. So basically, when they finally caught him on on a conceal and carry violation, they were able to get him for all these rapes and burglaries in all these different counties. He was sentenced to 70 years in prison, which you would think... Wonderful. Let's get this fucker off the yeah, street, right? Let's keep him in for life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Unbelievably. So what hmm. um, he was released on parole in May of 1972 after 12 years. Wow. He only served 12 years of his 70 year sentence. I did the math. That's only 17% of Fuck. his total sentence. How does that happen? He didn't even serve a quarter of it. I don't know. Mm. So. Of course, he was like, oh, maybe they want me to just be a total nuisance to society. Yeah, and they just want monster. me to continue all the dumb shit that I was doing before and continue to be a fucking monster. Huh. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. exactly what he did. And three months later, after being paroled, on August 11th, 1972, he raped a 17-year-old girl in the Madison, Wisconsin area, like two and a half <sighs> hours from Appleton. He was arrested, convicted, and sentenced to 12 years in prison for that rape. 12 years. His 12-year sentence was to run concurrent with his original sentence of 70 years. And I was like, why did he only get 12 years, especially considering his previous conviction and sentence of 70 years? In one source, I found that the judge that presided over this case, Judge Richard Bardwell, had reasoned that the rape was, quote, much more mild than Spanbauer's previous rape the one where he tied the victim down spread eagle, raped her at knife point, and then blasted another man in the face with a handgun. Therefore, Judge Bardwell figured Spambauer has moved from being a, quote, very dangerous sex offender to now merely, quote, just dangerous. So there has been some improvement. Judge Bardwell was also quoted as saying, quote, the girl was in effect asking for it. Are you fucking kidding me? So he's less violently raping women so it's okay like eventually he'll be just fucking a councilman i don't know like what are we expecting out of this fucking turd Mm -hmm. that is disgusting yeah wow so spam bauer did serve that 12 years and then he served another six and a half years of the original 70-year sentence because okay. the 12 years was to run concurrent with the 70-year sentence. So as soon as he was done with the 12 years, he was to just continue on with the 70-year. And you would think, okay, now finally this guy's going to be in prison for the rest of his life. Yeah. No, no, mm. no. On January 29th, 1991, so only 18 and a half years later after that second conviction, he was paroled again. And this time, he was able to control himself for almost 18 whole months. Way to go, buddy. And on August 23rd, 1992, when he saw 10-year-old Ronell Sue Eichstead riding her bike near her home in Ripon, Wisconsin, he just couldn't help himself. He's a fucking disgusting dirge of society. It yeah. makes like it makes me it makes me sick to my stomach. This guy is just oh. How many chances do these fuckers get? Yeah. Do we really think that he's not going to keep doing it? Like, come on. And if you look at him, he looks like fucking Adolf Hitler. Uh, he's got like that kind of must. He's just he's just disgusting. Hmm. So he forced little Ronnie, who was just a fourth grader. She was 10 years old hmm. into his car 
where he sexually assaulted her, and then he killed her, and then he dumped her body in a remote farm field in Iowa County in southwestern Wisconsin. Oh, my God. Two years later, on July 3rd, 1994, Spanbauer attempted to abduct that 24-year-old woman that I told you about who was the yeah. badass who would go on to provide enough detail to put together a composite sketch that would help bring Spanbauer to justice eventually. Six days later, on July 9th, 1994, Spanbauer murdered 21-year-old Trudy Jeske in her North Appleton home after she came home and surprised him during an attempted burglary. Ah, oh, shit. After abducting, raping, and killing Cora on September 5th, 1994, Spanbauer went on to burglarize a home in Appleton on October 20th, 1994, and raped a 15-year-old girl that lived there. Oh, my God. Then, on November 5th, 1994, he burglarized another Appleton home where he raped a 31-year-old woman. Jesus. It was on November 14th, 1994, when Spanbauer was peeping into that bathroom of the Green Bay home at the at the female homeowner, when the male mm -hmm. homeowner confronted him and then, like, tackled him and laid yeah, on top like of him. Fucking bear-hugged him to the ground. Yep. That's when his reign was over and police took him into custody and they kind of started to tie the pieces together. Wow. While Appleton police were convinced that they had finally caught the person responsible for the string of sexual assaults and robberies that had been occurring, the district attorney also contacted detective Ben Baker in Langlade County to see if perhaps maybe Spambauer was also responsible for the Cora Jones murder. Baker received a fax Remember facts? <laughs> yes, I sure do. So Baker received a fax of Spam Bauer's picture, which was strikingly similar to the composite sketch. Oh. When Detective Baker was able to question Spam Bauer, he showed him the composite sketch, which basically looked like a legitimate photograph of Spam Bauer. And Spam Bauer just stared at Baker, like just stared at him. And ba like, Detective Baker just stared back at Spam Bauer. Sweet. So they had a stare off. Who won? Detective fucking Baker. Nice. Spam Bauer eventually nodded and admitted that, yes, he was the one that tried to abduct that 24-year-old. So Detective Baker was like, all right, we're on to something here. So he switched gears and he started questioning Spam Bauer about the abduction and murder of Cora Jones. And while it took several interviews, Baker finally did get Spam Bauer to confess the details of how he abducted and murdered her. Wow. Good. I mean, good, but ugh. Good that he was finally caught right. Yeah, and that he was able to provide details and yeah, admitted it and whatever, but ugh. Spanbauer told Detective Baker that he saw Cora alone riding her bike. He pulled over in front of her and waited for her to ride up to his car, like to catch up to him. And he jumped out, and as she started to go around his vehicle, he literally snatched her from her bike while telling her at the same time to get into his car. And, and she did, because she was 12. Yeah. Detective Baker asked Spambauer if he had, like, a weapon that he used to force her in his, into his car. And Spambauer said, quote, I, m I might have had a knife. Once Cora was in his car, he forced her to undress, undress and he raped her immediately. Like, mm -hmm. as soon as he got her in the car, he raped her immediately. I don't think he had any control at that point. Like, I don't think he could have waited. I think anybody could have driven by any, like, he literally had no control, which wow. is fucking terrifying. During his questioning, Detective Baker asked Spanbauer if he had targeted Cora, like, hunted her, targeted her, stalked her. Yeah. And Spanbauer shared that no, he didn't target Cora specifically, but that he liked to go what he called quote-unquote, fishing. Ew. God damn. The act of fishing, the, the very act of just <sighs> fishing, hunting, excited him. He told Detective Baker that he didn't enjoy the killing part, but that it was necessary because if he let his victims go, they would be able to identify him and then yeah. he would get in trouble and he would get caught and then he wouldn't be able to continue doing what he was doing. He went on to tell Detective Baker about the last moments of Cora's life. He said he drove to the place where authorities later discovered her body. He walked her in down into the ditch and he tried to strangle her, but he wasn't able to. So he's a fucking weakling. Wow. 
So he took out the knife he had. So he had a knife and he reached around to the front of Cora's body because he was standing behind her and he stabbed her several times, eight times to be exact. And as he was sharing these details with Detective Baker, he showed literally not one ounce of emotion or remorse. He just was like matter of factly explaining it. He didn't give a fucking shit what he did to Cora or any of his other victims. He did not give a shit. He was just fishing. Mm-hmm. This is disgusting. Now, as authorities were processing Spanbauer's maroon car, they took carpet samples and they compared them to the red fibers they had lifted from Cora's body when she was discovered. And they were a perfect match. Nice. Irrefutably proving that Cora had very well been inside Spanbauer's car and forensically linking Spanbauer to Cora at the time of her murder. Good. So basically, the only thing at this point that Spambauer was concerned about was the publicity of his arrest negatively affecting his family. Oh, my God. He didn't have a wife or children, but he did have parents and two sisters. And with the mounting evidence, he ultimately pled guilty to murdering Cora, as well as committing 17 other crimes across the state of Wisconsin. Wow. And Cora's family was completely disgusted that Spanbauer had slipped through the cracks and was able to take Cora from them. Because he, if you'll recall, like one, two, three, four, like he did almost a handful. He did a handful of really, really horrible things, including murdering two girls. Right. After he was paroled the second time. Yeah. It's like he should not have been let out ever. He should have been in prison for a very long time. It's a fucking shame. During Spambauer's sentencing, there were so many people that were in the courtroom that had been touched by Cora's murder. They were all sitting together in solidarity behind Spanbauer in a show of support and love for the person that he had taken from them. They were all there for Cora. And the prosecutor on the case said, quote, the grief that was there was just stunning. It was in some ways almost paralyzing to understand the magnitude of what he had left in his wake. I thought that was pretty profound. Yeah. When the judge sentenced Spanbauer, his contempt was literally like you could cut it with a knife. He said, quote, David Frank Spanbauer, I don't know from what cesspool in hell you have slithered forth. I can't send you back there. You are pure evil and without redemption. The only thing I can hope for is that you never spend one more day in peace for the rest of your life. Wow. And with that, he was sentenced to three life terms plus 403 years, which was the maximum the judge could give. Fuck yeah. Wisconsin doesn't have the death penalty. If he got paroled after that, right. I was going to lose my mind and move to another state. <laughs> Just pretty much immediately. What really sucks, though, is that he died in prison in 2002. So he only served a handful of years. He was 61 and he died from liver failure. Like, he didn't even really, like, do his time. Do you know what I mean? Right, yeah. What's really, really cool, though, is that Cora's family created a memorial at the spot where her body had been discovered up in Lang Lake County. And every Labor Day weekend, they traveled to the memorial to honor her memory. Aww. I just love that. They're just... The Joneses family, like, the interviews on the Palazan on the case episode, they are just such loving people. I mean, they're just such sweet, loving people. Yeah. Yeah. And that is the extraordinarily sad and tragic case of Cora Jean Jones. And to this day, Cora's parents, Rick and Vicky, they live in agony with her, with her absence. Oh, yeah. And you know, this case, it brings up the idea of whether or not reformation can actually be achieved in prison. So that'll be a rabbit hole for another time. A big shout out. This case was uh, a recommendation by M. So M, thank you. Thank you for being an awesome listener. Thank you for the recommendation. And thank you for your um, for your insights on this case. And uh, we hope you keep listening. We hope you liked this episode and that you felt like we did right by Cora and her family. Yes. Thank you so much. And this Angel's Envy helped to get me through. that. This was a tough one. When I was yeah. researching it, I had to put it down a couple of times because I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, that was tough to, to listen to. Yeah. Cases like this frustrate the shit out of me when someone should have been behind bars when that happened. And the number of people that would not have been hurt or killed or traumatized or, you know, just had a lifetime of 
trauma, it could have been prevented and he slipped through the fucking cracks and it's so frustrating and sad. I know. These cases are, are tough. I have no idea what it's like to be on a parole board, right? I don't, I have no idea what, what circumstances they look at and what criteria. I don't understand what laws they're required to follow in sort of like the, the judiciary sense of it all. So maybe they were in a situation, I'm just trying to see all sides, right? Maybe they were in a situation where they weren't really given a choice. Sometimes even like, you know, overcrowding, you know, prison population and overcrowding. Like sometimes people, parole boards are forced to parole some people that aren't quote unquote violent offenders. Although I would argue Spam Bauer is an absolutely violent offender. There's got to be some some weed dealers or exactly. minor theft crimes that like they could have let go before him. Yeah, exactly. They can be reformed, but I can't fathom what they would have seen in him that they would have thought, yeah, he's our pick for... Yeah, maybe he the played streets. the game. I don't know. But it's uh, infuriating. Yeah. So I'm going to go cry. I know. I don't think that he was able to be... I just don't think there was any... Oppor- not opportunity, but any chance of reformation with him regardless. Mm-hmm. I just don't... He had two opportunities. And he just couldn't wait to get out. And I will tell you, January 12th, 1960 was the start of his rap sheet. But there were three or four incidents prior to that that he admitted to that he didn't get caught for. Wow. So he was doing shit since he was 16 years old. And I'm glad he is no longer able to hurt anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Thank you everybody for listening. And we hope that you come back for the next episode. And as always, please check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Rate, review, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. And if you have any case suggestions or good bourbons to try or just anything at all, please send an email to crimewilltellpod at Mm gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And we appreciate your support. Very much. Like a lot. Like like so much. Like so big. (laughs) Oh, Jamie, before we go, I want to do a quick brother's babble. Oh, yes. Okay. I love okay. these. Um, and so brother was struck down by the street ninja, AKA COVID okay. and he got it real bad. So uh. he finally got caught up and he gave, he responded to the Robert Hansen parts one and two episode. Uh-huh. And he said, how many damn exotic dancers are in Anchorage? <laughs> That's what he got out of parts one and two. I mean, Hey, <laughs> Thanks and he was for like, listening. oh, I'm sorry. I missed this one. He goes, and and what is he doing with like no education and he has a plane, which I agree with like. Yeah. How do you swing that? Yeah. That's funny. Thanks, brother. Yeah. On that note. Goodbye, Jamie. Goodbye, Carrie. I, I love you so hard. <laughs> like the hardest. <laughs> Let's fucking do it. I'll make sure I do my hair. Nice. I dig that. What the fuck is my problem? Fuck off. I'm just getting paper plates. I mean, get me some of that. They're the best. <laughs> Mike, I don't fucking know. Whew.